Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Heather Redman. Heather is experienced in corporate development and finance, business development, and intellectual property strategy through her time at companies like Adam, Photodisc, Summit Power Group, and Getty Images. Almost three years ago, Heather and her two partners started Flying Fish Partners to invest capital, expertise, and relationships in early-stage startups with big ideas. Last spring, they began raising capital for an $80 million fund to invest in Pacific Northwest startups. In addition, Heather is an active mentor, board member, and advisor. Welcome, Heather. Thank you. I'm so, I'm so glad that you're here. We're going to start with rapid fire, and then I'm going to put you on the spot and um, expose what we talked about right before we started <laughs> on the podcast. Okay, you ready? Yes. Rapid fire. Morning or night person? Night. Me too. <laughs> Mountains or ocean? Ocean. Are you a people pleaser? No. Oh, God. You're so lucky. <laughs> Book that you most frequently recommend to others. Oh, gosh, that's a really good. Oh, no, that's a that's an easy one. Uh, younger next year. Younger next year. OK, mm -hmm. you have to text it to me when we're done. I'm going to forget. Bucket list destination. Don't believe in it. You don't believe in any bucket list or destinations that you want to go see? Either. OK, we have to talk about that. <laughs> Okay. Um, word most often used to describe you. Ooh, good question. Very good question. Uh, I, that's hard because, of course, you don't listen to people describing you because they wouldn't have to describe you in front of you. Uh, I think in Seattle, uh, networked probably. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, is there an app that you can't live without? Many apps, certainly Uber and Lyft, have yeah. become essential. Uh, all of the um, delivery apps, essential. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I used to really love Wonderlist, but not so much anymore. Mm -hmm. Don't use that much anymore. I always feel like you're able to gracefully and in a poised way and in a very present way kind of show up, but also cover a lot of ground. Um, it's no surprise that you use the word networked because you are. But I want to talk about you as a little girl. I've met you as a successful, established, networked woman in Seattle, but I'm curious to know who I would have met if we were in grade school together. Ah, yes. Well, I have a, a very unconventional childhood, which I don't think is that unusual, so it's not super remarkable, but it's still interesting to a lot of people. So I um, was raised basically by hippies and communes until I was about... 13 and um, didn't go to school until I was 10 uh, as a result of that. So you wouldn't have known me in grade school, but you could have known me in middle school. Wait, so, okay. I think I did know this because I think you told me this, but I need to know everything now. So a commune, meaning like there's all these families and you're all living together and... 
Yeah, most of the ones that I lived in uh, didn't have a lot of families in them because I was, my mom had me when she was 20, I think, or maybe, yeah, 20, no, mm-hmm. 19. And were, almost your, were 20. your parents married? Uh, they were, uh, but that didn't last for very long. Um, but so when I was about two, uh, my parents were split and they both still took care of me, but in different communes. In different communes. So okay. I bounced back and forth. Some of the communes were, this was all in Southern California and then in Oregon, but in Southern California, some of the communes were just like really big houses. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like above the Del Mar racetrack, there was a 13 bedroom house with a lot of outbuildings and grounds and things that so got you lived- into a commune. Do you live in diff- different rooms and then there's common areas that everybody participates in? Is that how yeah. it works? Yeah, a lot like, you know, you think about uh, when I got to college and, you know, had an opportunity to move into a house with a bunch of other people, that felt very normal and familiar to me. And in fact, I still kind of crave that. Um, and I have, we have a place up in the San Juan Islands that I think of as being sort of a, a, a high thread count commune because we all have separate houses, but there's a lot of communal activities and a lot of communal space. Um, and I, I enjoy that a mm-hmm. lot. Uh, but so as growing up, it was um, either a uh, um, a house or we also had another commune that was a small house and had a, a couple of bedrooms that some people lived in and a kitchen where a lot of people hung out, but also had a lot of sort of makeshift shelters. So I remember my mom, this is when my mom and dad were actually living in the same commune, although they weren't together. Uh, but my dad had a uh, little hut built of kind of deconstructed tents and and uh, literally palm fronds for the roof. And my mom had a little hut that was built out of um, that sort of semi-see-through plastic. And so hers was framed out with like two-by-fours and then had this plastic so you could kind of see through it, but not really. And they were maybe... I don't know, uh, a thousand yards apart in different little parts of this canyon. And were they working, your parents? Uh, Like, how did they make money? Well, I mean, we were on food stamps Uh uh, for part of that time, but they... um, they they had some jobs. Uh, my dad was a carpenter, and I think my mom did some carpentry for a while. Uh, are they still alive right now? Yes. Mm-hmm. And are they still hippies? Uh, one of them is, and one of them is not. And what word would how would you describe the word hippie? At that time, it was very political, so it wasn't sort of like, "Hey, let's just live a crazy lifestyle." Bohemian, yeah. No, it was it was very much. We don't agree with the establishment. And um, when I was born, the Vietnam War was still, you know, going on, and so there was a lot of anti-war and and uh, a lot of rejection of sort of you know societal norms um, uh, and feminism and and how has that shaped you? I think I. uh, a couple of ways. I mean, I think I am um, very much an out-of-the-box thinker, you know, and, and believe in the ability to create things and to start things. Um, and I also have, you know, kind of a deeply unconventional streak myself. I, I don't like to conform. I, I like to break rules. Um, I like to uh, make a splash and and be sort of different. And so um, that, you know, has continued to to sort of shape me. But I also think that my politics, you know, I'm I'm a very liberal person, but I also don't have a lot of patience for dogma. And and I think it's probably because I was exposed to some dogma as a kid where, you know, sort of a a very um, uh, sort of fashionable left perspective Mm -hmm. and uh, and 
have seen how people can kind of whip themselves into an ideology, and I I don't have a lot of patience with that either. So I look at things from a very pragmatic standpoint, mm-hmm. and and try to figure out you know what's right as opposed to what conforms to a particular political ideology. Yeah, I can totally see that. And so when you started to say that you don't like to think like kind of inside the box, that's what I was about to reference when we were talking about your intro. I was going to introduce you and and list all of your incredible accomplishments, but also throw in their wife and mother. And you were like, yeah, no, I'm not into that. (laughs) So I didn't understand that. Like, why? Yeah, I think um, I think the uh, the sort of the and she's a wife and mother um, tends to kind of raise a question mark in the case of women. And in the case of men, um, it's this thing that men try to lead with to try to uh, establish that they are good people. Mm, and, and and so, you know, I, I, I think it's and, and it's sort of a thing that doesn't really add to my uh, professional accomplishments or to my kind of reason why anybody would be interested in talking to me. So I always think it's a little bit weird. For me, for me that I don't agree. I want to learn from you on all of it because my guess is that we could talk for hours about you as a mother. I would be curious to know how you've raised your daughter. And I know that she's extremely accomplished also and that's someone that you're proud of. And yeah. I also see you and Eric in your marriage. Yeah. That seems like something I would like to learn from. So for me, I, I just really am curious about that part of you. It's it's all of you to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I guess I don't I don't feel like I do anything that's particularly novel on the I guess when I look at where like where have I excelled, where am I interesting? Mm-hmm. I don't really think I've excelled as a wife or a mother. Well, you you're know? still married and your daughter yeah. still wants I mean, to I, hang out with you. Yeah, but I consider that to be sort of like table stakes. <laughs> yes. You know, that's like, okay, you showed up at your yeah. at your job yeah. today. Yeah. You know, so it doesn't strike me as that's the interesting, interesting. part okay. of me. And and also I think kids, while they're interesting, and I'm super proud of my daughter, she's just beginning her life, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think often um, if you are a woman, you'll end up talking to other women about your kids as opposed to yourselves and what you're trying to do. And, and I always say, even though my child is very interesting, uh, I always say, well, I think I'm more interesting at my age than she is at her age simply because she hasn't had a chance to do a lot of things. So I'd rather talk about what I'm doing and what you're doing than what our kids are doing. Yes. And and sometimes I, – I mean, I agree. I don't yeah. love that conversation yeah. because it's like, okay, great. Johnny did a – that's nice. Right. This alone, the fact that you even pushed back on it. The first person that I've had even mention mm, it interesting. out of many podcasts yeah. that I've done so far, and hopefully it's the beginning of lots more because this is really fun for me, but it's a conversation now, right? Now yeah. this is a whole other side of you that I'm like, huh. I've always been in awe of and curious about how you feel balanced or if there is a time that you feel unbalanced mm, mm-hmm. and if those parts of you play a role in that. Like I haven't quite gotten enough connection with my spouse or enough with my friends. Yeah. Because I see you really tripling down on your career in such an amazing way. But you don't seem to have any anxiety about it. You seem pretty resolved in who you are, which I think is incredible. Yeah, I, I, I do have some anxiety about it. And I do um, I noticed the balancing. One one place where I've struggled recently is with my parents uh, because they're now getting older and have needed more more time and attention from me. And, mm-hmm. and recently my mom and my stepdad moved to Seattle. And it's the first time I've ever lived in the same town as my parents since, you know, leaving uh, really 
high school, not even college. And are you going to be the primary caregiver? Now? I'm an only child. Oh, so, only child. yeah, so I am, you you're know, the it's person. me. Yeah. And, um, and I've noticed that tension between how much time do I have to give to my mom in this particular case versus how much time do I have to do the other things that I, you know, mm-hmm. need to do, want to do, et cetera. And, and I've tried to think about that as, you know, if I were an only son versus an only daughter, how would I feel? Uh, and how would she feel? Um, and I, I think that's a really interesting thought experiment. Um, a friend of mine, Christy Johnson, uh, did an interview of me for research purposes some time ago. I love Christy. She's super smart. I, I, I definitely. Hi, Christy. Uh, yes, I have a big <laughs> fan of hers. Me too. But, but she did this interview of me for research purposes, and she asked me um, a question of, what if you were your brother? You know, what if you were exactly you, but a man? And that was actually the most intense question that I think anybody has ever asked me because I just immediately was like, wow, you know, so many. Um, Did you ever put, you'd never put on that hat before? No. Oh, interesting. Because I do have a brother. Well, and see, and I he's don't 15 have 15 months older, and we're both kind of strong personalities and yeah. hard driving and driven, and we get yeah. compared sometimes. Uh-huh. Yeah. So. It is interesting. Yeah. And I'm a different role when I'm with him. I become very much like the, the baby sister. Oh, interesting. When you were raised on a commune, there were the other kids? Not really. Not a lot of other kids because my mom had me so young, I think. And um, and most of the people were in that really young stage. And she was hanging out with all these sort of college kids and things, even though she was not going to college. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think she kind of got pulled into a different sphere. Um, so one of the, the reasons that I've always felt a little out of step with with my peers, even growing up, um, was that I had been around adults so much mm-hmm. and, and was you know always exposed to all of that mm-hmm. very early. And what was uh, like fueling you? That's my word. What was fueling you back then? Were you seeking your parents approval or were you like, I got to get out of this life or what were you trying to go toward? Yeah, I think because I had such a chaotic childhood, um, one of my things is been balancing the need for some stability uh, mm-hmm. with um, or safety with my natural kind of out of the boxness mm-hmm. desire for change and newness. You know, I have a big drive to always be kind of mixing things up. Um, but I do, I like having some, you know, feeling of. Um, centeredness and mm-hmm. safety. Like I, like I'm the sort of person that will go out and you know, like get my car cleaned because it makes me feel like more kind of together. I know completely. That right. Makes sense. And, and so and what I else seek makes those you, sorts what of else things. makes you feel um, that way? You're not going to like this question, but is it represented by being married or is it represented by money? Or do those yeah. things make you feel safer? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I had a I had a coach once. I had a a great coach for about three months until I was like, wow, I'm not getting to my homework, and this is really expensive. But you know, I'd love to love to go back to that. But she said, you're probably one of those people that has like a lot of toilet paper in your house, and I'm like, yeah, I do. Uh, and I used to overbuy on the grocery side mm-hmm. too, and I think it was probably because I didn't feel like we had everything I wanted when I was a little kid. They're doubling so, down. To yeah, yeah. So it's like, like let's have you know things in reserve, choices mm-hmm. you can make, that kind of thing. Um, I don't think I'm definitely not a hoarder because I also like simplicity. I've been to your house. You are not a hoarder. Yeah, your not house a, is so not elegant. a hoarder. Not a hoarder. But uh, but I like having that kind of like okay, we know everything's sort of in its place, and mm-hmm. and um, so and are you a worrier? 
Um, like, did you I, have to be the adult for your parents? I not really. I think I'm a. I think I'm a worst case scenario planner. So if there is something that's a hole in the fabric of my life, I will. You know, whether that's um, some sort of threat or some sort of deficit or whatever. I will um, spin out like, well, what what's the, the yeah, end game Like you've here? got your earthquake kit. Yeah, I do have an earthquake kit. Uh, we should all have an yeah, earthquake kit. Yeah, especially in a high rise. I have one, but I don't know where it is. Yeah, <laughs> I have I have multiple in different I do places. I do have them in my office. I'm yeah. like, I do that. Yeah. And then I'm like, oh, I have the straws in case we want to drink out of the lake. Like, I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> I literally bought this. Like, really, I'm just Okay, that's good. That's good. Yeah, a, I don't have the straws. Take I need a raft the on the lake. Yeah. I don't even know what the plan is, but <laughs> mentally I feel better. We could skip to many different things. You've also had, you know, an incredibly impressive academic experience, read mm. college, undergrad, mm-hmm. Stanford for law school. Mm-hmm. What kind of people were you meeting there and what was your story like compared to theirs? Yeah. So I, I grew up in a pretty small town, you know, first of all, Southern California, surfing towns, then Oregon, and and then went to a small college, a Reed College, which was a kind of a, a return to my hippie roots because I'd grown up in a pretty rural part of the Oregon coast for high school. So pretty conservative and and Reed attracted me is getting back to those hippie, um, hippie roots. Uh, but um, I think the, the uh, sort of the the takeaway for me as I was growing up was always the 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 not fitting in part, um, the being the smart kid and not fitting in and trying to be cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I worked really hard at not appearing smart in high school. And what did you do to not um, appear smart? Uh, things that we probably can't talk about oh. on, on the podcast. No, I get it. Uh, we'll, yeah. co- we'll have a cocktail yeah. later yeah. and you'll tell me. Yeah, uh, but lots of partying, lots of, um, you know, just trying to kind of hang with the, you know, with the, the cool jocks kids. and yeah. the cool kids and, and um, did a lot of dance, which was, you know, which was cool back then um, as well. And then uh, in college, I kind of found my people mm-hmm. because Reed really does revolve around being intellectual And so that was a good setting for me. And then at Stanford, I was shocked to find that even though I'd been in these relatively small environments, that I was a really smart person when stacked up against, Mm -hmm. you know, these people from all these elite institutions around the country and the world. And and so that I I wish I had found that out sooner. My my Mm -hmm. husband is a Rhodes Scholar and um, and, you know, we go toe to toe all the time. And I'm like. You know, I should have known that I was that I was. Where did your parents tell you you were smart? Did they know? No, I, they didn't tell me. I did get pulled out of school on several occasions and asked to skip grades and, you mm-hmm. know, and IQ tested and yeah. all of that. So did you I have think... anyone like a teacher take you under their wing and kind of help you along? Not really, no. Um, one of my sort of hallmarks is I'm not very good, I think, at being mentored because I when people say, well, who's your mentor? And I'm like, I don't think I've ever really had a mentor. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just not a thing for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but I think, you know, I think I had an idea, but I also think that the imposter syndrome thing that, you know, that I've talked about before and I know you talk about a lot is is it has been a factor for me. And so that's one of the things that I've liked a lot about getting um, to the stage of life where I am now is I feel like I'm I now don't let myself get away with that anymore. And mm-hmm. I I go ahead and um, challenge myself and also recognize what I'm capable of, mm-hmm. which is which is a nice place to get whenever you get to it in your life. It doesn't happen to doesn't have to happen in your in your teens, your 20s, your 30s, whatever. You can wait. Uh, but it's good if it does happen, I think. Yeah. I talked a little bit with Dan Shapiro off the podcast about 
imposter syndrome because it's in his book. He has like a little section about it. Yeah. And he was talking about how it's kind of, um, if you read up on it, it talks about it's like a woman thing. But then they did a survey and made it anonymous mm-hmm. for men and women and uh, realized that like a ton of men obviously oh, yeah. also have the same thing. Yeah. Um, My husband has it. And I'm like, you got to be kidding like, me. You're a freaking Rebel Scholar. Yeah. No, he, he just thinks he's really good at, at faking it and synthesizing things. I wonder where that comes from. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I would have thrived at like a read college. Yeah. Little is good for Little college, is I think. Great. Yeah. I yeah. yeah, I highly, highly encourage my kids to go to a small school. Um, and so skipping around, when you went to Stanford and got a law degree, were you thinking you were gonna practice law? Because I know you were GC, but um, I, you know, again, this is another um, sort of uh, byproduct of my upbringing. I really didn't know what business was. Uh, I mean, I definitely didn't know what business How was. How did you even know about Stanford Law School? Um, well, I think at the time when I was in college, uh, L.A. Law was on TV. And so I was watching L.A. Law, and I think it just looked like an attractive, sort of safe, kind of money-making environment. And mm-hmm. given my kind of deprived upbringing, I think that one of the things that appealed to me was this idea of being able to make money. Um, I remember watching, a, I think it was a 60-minute show on all of these women in Beverly Hills who had gotten a divorce and were now living in their cars. And I, and this was actually post-law school, but I remember turning to my cat at the time who was on the couch with me. His name was Mango. And I was like, Mango, mommy is never going to end up living in her car, it, which, you know, calling your cat, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the conversation, the one-on-one yes, with the cat. with the cat, like, with, with cat referring to you as mommy. You yeah. know, that's a little bit questionable yes. right there. But but that idea of I want to be able to take care of myself um, kind of drew me to law school. And I mm-hmm. think once you decide you're going on that path, and it's pretty easy to look up what are the top 10 law schools and apply to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it was still a, a little bit of a random act. And I think if I had known what I know now then, I would have gone to business school instead of law school. Uh, and at least I would have gotten a JD MBA, which is something that I have counseled many, many people to do, and they have done it. And mm-hmm. and nobody ends up practicing law out of that. So I really only practiced law for about five years before I went over onto the business side, mm-hmm. um, just because my natural tendency is so much more entrepreneurial than it is, you know, to sort of grind out the other review people's contracts. Ideas. And yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I like the law. I think it's really fun. Well, and yeah, I enjoy and it also it, equips but... you to be. Strong as a businesswoman and look over things and not feel intimidated or that oh, yeah. something's outside of your comfort zone. It's great. It's great um, uh, it's intellectual like training. Yeah. Uh, quite honestly, it's it's very analytical. It's 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 kind of you know um, math with words. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's actually a really good thing for what you know we do in this world. Yeah. And have the people along the way, the Reed friends, the 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 um, Stanford Law School friends, has it been building blocks? Because I'm seeing you. Um, have just so many amazing contacts and everybody loves you. I literally have not met one person who does not have not just, oh, she's great, but like on and on about how amazing wow, you are. Wow, that's and there's stunning. Little, but there's little stories of things that you're doing for people that you might not even know that you're doing. Hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Wow, and you're that's just, great to hear. Thank yes. you. Uh, um, no, I, I, um, I am inherently an introvert actually, which uh, most people are shocked by. Uh, I'm not shocked by that. Good, good. Well, you're more perceptive, I think, than than a lot of people about sort of what really makes people tick. Um, but I, in, in college and law school, um, I really didn't 
maintain or initiate a lot of relationships. I was um, much more kind of casual about it and and less intentional about mm-hmm. kind of maintaining that and, and cultivating that. Um, I have backfilled for some of that now, you know, to go back and get in contact with some of those people and, and you know, try to reignite some of those relationships. And I think that's been successful to some degree. But my extrovertedness and my intentionality around having a great network of people that are, are interesting and vibrant has really come out of um, – learning from my husband. You know, and this is a time when I, I do actually talk about my my husband mm-hmm. because he is a, a true extrovert. How did you meet him? Uh, at work. Um, oh, we were yes, both yeah, about. we were both at the same uh, same law firm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just watched and and of course there's a lot of uh, academic literature on this now too that extroverted people whether it is learned extroversion or inherent extroversion are just much happier than introverts. Uh, they may not be more productive, but they're happier uh, because they're getting that human connection on an ongoing basis. So I partly decided to to try to be more that way from a mental health standpoint, but it's also obviously really, really good from a career standpoint to oh, great. be in the flow and the mix of, of lots of interesting, engaged people. Yeah, I completely agree. So you met him at a law firm and then was it like immediate? No. In fact, we um, we were both married working at the law firm because uh, it's a second marriage for both of us. And um, and we worked together uh, on and off on a variety of things without any kind of, you know, charisma or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly mutual professional admiration. Uh, but then um, we both got divorced around the same time and were dating other people. And then eventually, you know, kind of were like, well, wait a minute. The aha moment. Yeah. 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 And your first husband, if you had stayed married to him, would your life be look completely different? Or would you like, hey, this is what I'm doing. You're either in for the ride or you're not. Ironically, I think my life would would actually I'd probably be further ahead in my career uh, because I don't know what that um, means. Oh, what does that mean? Well, I'm often very um, upset with myself for not doing more uh, sooner. Um, part of the reason that I work so hard now is that I feel like I took some time not really off, but I, I sort of forgot what I was doing for a while. Mm-hmm. I kind of lost I lost the thread. Mm. And um, like stayed places too long that you shouldn't have or went too corporate or no, it was really my own personal attitude. And and it, it's really interesting. And it's it's probably some of why I have this wife and mother um, question mark in my head is that um, what I when I got married to my now husband, and we've been married now for, I always forget, which is one of the things that people think is hilarious. He probably I keeps think, him engaged with you, right? He's yeah. Like, he knows how long we've been married. But I think I think it's 22 years or something, but it's some, somewhere in that neighborhood. I, I also forget. What year did you get married? Uh, oh, that I know, 1996. Okay, well, so we could figure this. We could figure this so out. 23 yeah, so it's years. coming up on 23. Okay. Yeah, it'll be 23 this year. Um, so I am I am right. Phew. Good. Um, yeah. Woo. Uh, I do know the day, so that's good. Um, but uh, I I had so much ambition um, before we got married. And then when we got married, I felt like I lost my ambition. Mm. And and it was really interesting. And I think it, I think it had to do with some little chip in me that kind of said, well, now you've married this person that you really, really respect and who is a big man mm-hmm. and who is – somebody that you can, you know, kind of support and 
Um, and you, there's not, you don't have to be you anymore. You, mm, I mean, I really, I kind of, and even though I continued with my career and I didn't, you know, change like who was doing the dishes or anything like that, I, I really do feel like I, I sort of lost my ambitious streak mm-hmm. for, for a while. And, and then I had our, our daughter, we adopted our daughter. And I think I also then really got into the mom thing for a while too, of feeling like, I needed to slow down some things so that I could be more available to her. And um, and it was really when she was about 13 and based on some of the things that she was telling me when I realized, oh, wait, wake up. What was she telling you? She was noticing uh, that a lot of her peers' moms were um, overly involved in their kids' lives <laughs> and not very happy. And I and I too much time on their hands. Heli- yeah. Helicopter moms. Yeah. yeah. Didn't have enough of their own stuff going on. Wow. Um, and uh, and I w- and and she picked and, up and on I thought, that. that and maybe... I thought she was right. Yeah. And and I, of course, I was working and all of that. But I realized I have a chance here to instead of kind of keeping things on medium, I can mm-hmm. turn them up to very high. And was that a moment or like over time you were having little. I think it was kind of a a, a switch that got flipped, uh, and then once I got going on it, then it became a project. And did that need to be a conversation with Eric of like, hey, things are going to change around here? Yeah, no, I we did have a conversation about it, and and one of the things that I did is I said, you know, going forward, if we have an event, because like, we do a lot of political fundraising and and things of that nature, I said, you know, I, I'm going to do the introducing, and my name's going to be first, and you know, I'm going to take the lead on this stuff because I want to build a platform for myself. And he's totally cool with it. And and that you have done. I don't know when that moment was, but I came into the scene for you. Like, we've been friends over five years, but not that long. Mm-hmm. I remember when I met you. It was at one of those Women of the Northwest events. Mm, and yeah. you had a presence. For those who have not seen you, maybe there's friends live, who live in other cities listening. Um, you know, you're this, what, 5'11", 6 foot, five tall, 11. blonde, yeah. gorgeous, oh, beyond you. elegant fashion you know, stylist, beyond, beyond, beyond. (laughs) And especially in a city like Seattle, where that doesn't happen that often. I mean, honestly, that was at first what stood out for me. And then on top of it, to hear you speak and be so articulate and so confident. um, That's that's the person that I met. So I would be curious if I'd met you before the light switch. I'm sure you were the same, just not quite aware of your... um, the impact that you have on others. I I just wasn't I wasn't putting in the work, you know. Yeah. Uh, so that was I was I was kind of laying back a yeah. little bit. And so um what do you read to kind of stay up on what's going on and um do you read a lot? I do. I read a lot of newsletters. I tend to read, you know, sort of deeper um things that are writing about um certainly technology and particularly artificial intelligence and machine learning, but also um uh, you know, things that talk about investing and then um, deeper sort of societal trends and um, law and policy trends. Where do you access this information? Well, there's a lot of different little niche publications. Mm-hmm. Um, if it, you have a half hour a day, what do you what are you prioritizing? I, I like uh, from a sort of an overview standpoint, I like Axios a lot. I also um, really like a um, 
uh, a newsletter called Exponential View. Um, and then I will also uh, read Inside AI, which has a ton of links in it. So you can, you know, go deep, deep, deep in that and get lost. Mm-hmm. But those, I would say, are my my three most frequently read um, sources. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like um, it's gonna. We're gonna run out of time if we go through all of your career stuff. And I, I, you've worked at such cool companies. Are there any of them that stand out to you as like the job of the kind of pre flying fish opportunities? Yeah, they're all really interesting, and and um, and the the teams that we had in each of them were really great and dynamic. I I would say that uh, you know some of the experiences that I had at Getty Images of of uh, combining it with PhotoDisc and then taking the company public and having the dual headquarters in London and Seattle and then moving kind of the whole company over to Seattle. Uh, and um, learning about the differences in business culture between the UK and the US, um, that was really fascinating. Yeah. And, and having such a dominant position in a you know in a really big industry was was quite fascinating. Dealing yeah, and with male dominated too, issues. right? Like, well, everything is. Yeah, I'm not in that many situations like that. I, yeah. mean, I haven't done the corporate thing ever. Ironically, uh, yeah. No, I've never had a woman boss. Yeah. Um, or uh, I actually have never had a woman peer. Um, you know, that's yeah. how male-dominated everything I've done yeah. has always been. I've always been the most senior woman in whatever environment I'm in. Yeah. And and so that, and I still <laughs> am today. Yeah. Are you ever in a situation where um, you feel that it's an advantage to be a woman? Uh, no. I, I, don't, I don't think so. Uh, I don't a- always feel that it's a disadvantage. But I don't feel like it's particularly an advantage. Um, you know, you I, I guess maybe the one exception to that is I would say um, I feel like I get remembered more uh, than maybe my partners might or one of my colleagues might. And I think that has to do with being a woman. And so, you know, just like I don't necessarily remember men that I might meet, but I'll remember the one woman because there was only one of them an out of a hundred. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so that can work to your favor. I mean, I think I think one of the reasons I was able to ramp up my network in this region so much is that I did, you know, show up and be the the what's different here person, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that you know can, can create an impression and gives people like, oh yeah, they'll remember your name and they'll remember, you know, oh yeah, I met you here. Uh, but that I would say is really the only advantage. There's so many disadvantages to being a woman that that I just don't, I don't really see the advantages ever really coming into play. Ever in today or like ever in life? Uh, like you don't see a future for your daughter where there will be? Not, I don't think in her lifetime, honestly, where it will become, I don't think it'll become an even playing field during her career. Mm-hmm. But we are progressing in that direction. But we, we need to work really hard on it for a really long time. We're, we're definitely not done. An experience that I would really uh, wish for every woman and and every man too. Actually, I would I would wish for everyone is um, an experience I had. Uh, there is this this group called All Rays um, that's based down in the Bay Area, although they're not geographic. Uh, but um, uh, there's it's women VCs, uh, mm-hmm. and they're trying to promote more women VCs, and of course more uh, more funding for women founders and and underrepresented minorities too, uh, which is a huge problem. Mm-hmm. And um, and it's a group of I would say the conference that I went to uh, about 400 women were there, 
many of them very young in their career, you know, mm -hmm. very newly minted VCs and not very high up on the totem pole, but some who've actually been in the business for 20 years. Mm -hmm. uh, amazing, amazing collection of women. But when I was in that uh, room and it was a day-long conference, I felt like I was with a new gender um, to see uh, the women in that room to just experience how they felt very comfortable being them, their true selves in a professional environment mm -hmm. um, was amazing. And and uh, uh, Heidi Rosen, who's a great woman VC who has been in the business for a long time, um, said she always felt like she was a third gender in her early days is she, of VC. Is that CDLJ? Uh, yes, which yeah. is now Threshold. Yeah. yeah. And uh, she said, um, you know, because I wasn't, I, my partners were all men. None of their wives worked. And so I wasn't, I wasn't them. She wasn't and I relatable. wasn't them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she said, I just had my own thing. Mm -hmm. I was my own separate gender, mm -hmm. really. I was like this third gender that, that, and now we believe in gender fluidity. And so, mm -hmm. you know, it kind of calls that whole, um, that whole topic into question. But the, but I, I think when you can be with a group of women that are tr that are high performing professionals, and they are in sufficient mass that they don't feel threatened by the all the the more characteristically uh, male environment that mm -hmm. they work in, and they don't sort of shape their behavior to fit into that environment, it's a really interesting dynamic. Are women rooting for you? Do you feel that? Oh yeah, no, I definitely feel that, and and vice versa. But I but I do think there there was a an era um, when women um, couldn't afford to sponsor other women because they didn't have the political capital, and it was very costly to sponsor other women in terms mm -hmm. of what political capital they did have, mm -hmm. um, and and it didn't necessarily help the women that they were trying to sponsor because they were immediately suspect as well. You're just doing that because she's a woman or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, we gave a term sheet actually today to a woman CEO, and Yay. which super happy about that. She hasn't accepted it yet, but um, one of my partners is going to be on her board, not me. And I thought that's good, that's right and and appropriate mm -hmm. because if I were on her board, she'd kind of wonder, well, is Heather doing this just because you know I'm a woman CEO? So we give her the woman partner. Yeah, but, and, no. and if I were asked to do it by my partners, I'd probably be pissed. You know, so it's yes. just like sort of one of these interesting things, but. Um, but I think there was a time when when women rationally could not sponsor other women mm -hmm. and um, or could not do it in sufficient numbers. It, it does feel like a major shift. And I, and I, I think say, that's over. Over the past year, it has felt like a major shift where there's women actually taking actionable, you know, steps to help each other. And mm -hmm. at the event that Leslie had, the Female Founders Alliance event, mm -hmm. which I know you were um, involved yeah. in also – um, I really, it really resonated for me when we were, she was talking about like, women don't need a shoulder to cry on. They need like connections. I, I do feel that that kind of like, oh, deals are getting done on the golf course or in the, you know, at the gym. Yeah. Um, I do feel that that's shifted where women are just like, all right, move out of the way. Let's just like help each other. And yeah. Move make connections yeah. for each other. There's a Slack channel right now, uh, Women in VC, that was constructed by another group of women VCs out of New York. And um, I have done a couple of deals uh, through that Slack channel. That makes uh, me so happy yeah, to hear. Yeah. And, See, and that's it, real. Yeah. No, and I, and yeah, because my big thing is we don't even need connections. We need deals. Yeah, you, know, you need we deals. Need, we need to do business together. Yeah. And um, so yeah, I- you have to tell me if there's I anything I can do love, too. I love being able to take a good deal and show it to a bunch of women VCs. Yeah. Um, that's super fulfilling for me. Yeah. 
But I still need to give a lot of deals to men VCs because otherwise I won't be in the deal flow from yeah. them. You know, and that's so what it's you like, also want the right deals. I mean, you want yeah. the deal to get done. With, you want yeah. them to be supported. And with and the right team. With yeah. the right team. And mm-hmm. they shouldn't be penalized because they're men. Right. Exactly. Yeah. No, I completely agree with that. And so what types of companies and, and um, what are you exactly specializing in at Flying Fit? Yeah. So we specialize in artificial intelligence and machine learning-based companies. So we're looking always for people that are either right utilizing that technology in sort of a core way as, as they're moving forward with what's usually mm-hmm. a software or hardware company or um, – or the more rare company that's actually contributing fundamentally to the AI or ML, you know, tool set, the platform mm-hmm. that exists. And there's a lot of that going on right now. I mean, it's really going to become table stakes. Um, we, we think we're on sort of a 40-year equivalent to the Industrial Revolution, and maybe we're about five years in. So we're just at the very beginning of the ways that AI and ML are going to revolutionize really everything we do, whether that's in the business sphere or the personal sphere. And we want to be at the forefront of the companies that are executing on that. Yeah. And so you started it three years ago. Mm-hmm. And how big is the fund now? And um, yeah, we've got 40 yeah. million under management, which nice. is, yeah, yeah, a great size for us. And we typically write million dollar checks. And then we uh, at the will, seed round. Mm-hmm, and then we'll follow on uh, as and lead those rounds and take mm-hmm. a board seat. And then we'll follow on as the company goes through subsequent financings. Mm-hmm. And how do you advise um, if it wasn't an AI um, type of company or ML company? that you were investing in and you were just advising me to um, kind of how to vet an investor. What types of advice do you give to entrepreneurs? Yeah, I think um, the the main um, thing that you are looking for at the early stage is help and sustained ability to support financially. So the help can come in the form of recruiting. That's probably the number one issue. Um, first customers is probably the number two issue. Uh, deciding about um, future opportunities, that, which can be acquisition offers, um, is probably the number three issue. And then the um, the financial sort of sustainability and access question comes comes into what does the fund that that I'm running have in terms of dry powder to put additional money in when the company is ready to raise additional funds? And also what kind of connectivity do I have to the rest of the VC community so that I can help raise the next round, whatever Mm -hmm. it is. Mm -hmm. So those are really the factors. And, um, And the degree of help that you get has to do with what else is on that VC's plate? You know, mm-hmm. so one of the things that we often say is if you are a Seattle-based company, you really want a Seattle-based investor as part of your syndicate. So you may want a Valley investor too, or you may want a Valley investor later on. Yeah. Um, but having somebody local who's really paying attention to you because you are a big part of their success, as opposed to, you know, they're managing a billion dollars and they've got a million dollars in you, you know, they're going to pay the attention that's proportionate to the investment. Mm-hmm. And are you looking at ideas and leadership styles and people equally, or do you put more weight on people? We put the most weight on people because at the seed stage, the only thing you really know is the team, right? Yeah. You know, I always I always go back to my, my law background and say, the only thing in evidence is you, the mm-hmm. entrepreneur, mm-hmm. because you haven't yet developed a bunch of customers. You probably right. haven't completely built your product. Um, you know, we we don't know 
about what the market really is going mm-hmm. to lead to because obviously you're early stage, so your market's probably early stage. Mm-hmm. And so what we can understand is you. Mm-hmm. And so by you, do you mean the track record as far as vetting their experience or doing kind of off-the-record character references or all of the above? All of the above. And a lot of it is understanding how they're thinking about their business mm-hmm. and what their level of ambition is and, and what their level of, um, you know, grit is. Mm-hmm. And how, how, do you, how do you measure that part if you're just asking questions? Yeah, it's hard. I mean, you do get uh, – we, we try to have enough interactions with someone that we are getting some evidence in the door because – the follow through of the entrepreneur, the way in which the entrepreneur pushes back, the way in which the entrepreneur tries to engage with you. Those mm-hmm. are all really useful data Taking points. Taking feedback probably is probably yes, yes. attractive. Like, well, can I actually slightly coach you also? But, but how much feedback? You know, the other thing that sometimes people fall into the trap of is like they listen to the VC they last talked to and keep trying to shape their business to fit what's going to take to get the money, which is not what you want to see. You want to see somebody yeah. with a strong vision who will tell, you know, why does Heather Redmond know? You know, I need to tell her she's wrong about this. So, yeah. I, so but, the, but you've got great operational experience. Well, sure, I mean, but you, you but, do. but I'm, you know, you're not in it, right? Them, yeah, I'm not in it. And know. so you started it in 2016. When did you meet Jeff and Frank, and how did you choose each other? Yeah, um, Jeff and I knew each other through angel investing, and Frank and Jeff have been friends and colleagues for a long time. So we started. Jeff was really the fulcrum between the two of us. Mm-hmm. But we spent about a year, or so the 16 to 17, we we really spent thinking about whether we were the right team and talking a lot about, you know, and learning a lot about what is this market opportunity? What does VC really consist of? Because none of us had run a VC Mm -hmm. before. Um, What do we need to know? What do we need to be prepared for? Meeting each other's spouses. All of that. Yeah, really understanding, you know, can we do this together? Are we the right team? Because the biggest risk in a VC firm is the partnership risk. Will these partners fall apart? Yes. Can they really operate together? Yeah. And do you guys have um, clear lanes as far as roles? Or are you all Swiss Army knives? It's a it's a partnership. So we really work together on everything. That said, we all have areas of expertise, mm-hmm. and those are further developing over time. So we we have both, you know, sort of existing areas of expertise that we are doubling down on, and then we also have. Um, areas of learning that are sort of accumulating over time. So ironically, Jeff has done most of the interfacing with our lawyers. Um, so he understands all of that, you know, yeah. better than Frank and I do. Yeah. And you're um, the front facing person because you're very good at that, even though you describe yourself as an introvert. You, yeah. Yeah. You're so articulate and um, and I think a great face to also put a, a female at the front is great. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I think it was it was a natural uh, role for me. But I think the fact that I'm the only woman has been super helpful as well in terms of just getting mm-hmm. people to recognize that we exist. Mm-hmm. And what um, has surprised you the most? Like what you thought it was yeah. going to be like to yeah. be a VC and what it actually is like to be a VC. I think that the, um, the mis- the misnomer in VC is that raising money is the hard part. That is actually not the hard part. It's not easy by any means. But what's really hard is working with companies day in and day out um, and trying to be helpful to them. And, Mm -hmm. you know, which doesn't mean, oh, I wish I just had more time in the day. It means what to do and what not to do. Mm -hmm. Right. There's a lot of parenting. You're like, I don't want to be a helicopter parent, but I also don't want to let my kid like 
you know, take right. the bus downtown when, before they're ready. Right. And recognizing as a parent, which is probably the next harder thing, like, when is the kid right? And I'm wrong, right? Because we don't have a lock on wisdom. And and mm-hmm. so, you know, there's that's, you know, that's the dynamic we're in, because obviously this isn't a parent-child relationship. This is somebody who's at least as smart as I am, hopefully smarter, and who knows a lot more about what they are currently working on than I do. But I have this experience set, you know, to bring mm-hmm. to the table and also knowledge about the industry to bring to the table. Yeah. So it's a pretty common complicated thing. Uh, And uh, and we need to be sure we do no harm Mm -hmm. um, and try to do as much good as we can as well. Right. And are you consciously limiting your investment portfolio to Seattle? Or, uh, I mean, are deal, is deal flow coming to you from New York and L.A. and San Francisco? We get a lot of deal flow from elsewhere, but we are sticking to the region. So mm-hmm. we look, you know, at the Pacific Northwest plus British Columbia. And we'll look at things, you know, as far east as probably Utah. But mm-hmm. mostly what we see is Portland, Vancouver, B.C. and Seattle mm-hmm. as, as being the, the sources for the kinds of deals that we want to do. Mm-hmm. And are there any big trends that you're seeing as far as... Um, if you could anticipate the Seattle market in a couple years. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing a ton of computer vision and a, and a ton of natural language processing, which are both really um, huge areas of strength for the talent base here and, and areas that build very naturally on our cloud expertise. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what I see that will be maybe borne out, maybe not, is the possibility of us doing a lot more hardware with software. Because one of the trends in technology right now is the dividing line between software and hardware is getting a lot harder to maintain. And so if you want to be on the forefront of automation, you really need to be dealing with hardware as well as software. And um, firms and entrepreneurs that want to stick just with software, I think, are going to miss out on a lot of good opportunities. And if you look at what the heritage of this region is, we have a lot of hardware expertise. I mean, what is Boeing, right? Um, There is a lot of software that goes in that plane, but there's a lot of hardware as well. Mm -hmm. And that kind of expertise ripples throughout our entire ecosystem here. Yeah. I have to say, I was pretty blown away by all the things that you are involved in outside of Flying Fish. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also read that you don't create a lot of time for other stuff like hobbies. and Yeah, don't um, believe in hobbies. Yeah. I'm sure at this stage you're getting asked to kind of touch everything. How do you make those decisions and what's your vetting process for that? Um, do you have any hard lines around that? Yeah. So I, I, first of all, I bias toward yes. Um, you know, so I, I, I do probably say yes more than I should. And I try to warn people that my involvement may be limited, but that I think I can. You might just be lending your name and a couple connections, but not. Yeah. I may so not show time. up for every meeting yeah. or, or um, you know, be slogging through a lot of things. But um, but I look for synergies. I, I have this Venn diagram model of my life. And so I look for things um, that if I do this, it will make this other thing easier or I will be the one point of intersection between two really important circles. Mm-hmm. And so I can provide sort of a lot of value just by causing those two circles to overlap in the person of me. What's on the Venn diagram and where does it intersect? Yeah. So so, so technology uh, is obviously really important and, mm-hmm. and the way technology intersects with society. So mm-hmm. that causes politics to come in. Um, humanity, I'm, I'm a big believer in human um, uh, evolutionary biology. And so thinking a lot about what makes humans tick. And so that brings in 
um, some some of the uh, sort of deeper thinking around where are we going as a society and why, which is part of the law and policy and politics stack, but not completely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and then um, I try to to introduce some randomness in the equation. So you know, I'm pretty interested in the arts. Well, and I didn't see anything as, no, as far as your involvement in the arts. I, I don't have any board positions or anything with regard to the arts, and I, I have been toying with adding something like that. Yes. In, but I try to, to do a lot of random exposure on that. I um, think it would be incredible for the uh, for the community. Well, right? thank you. Thank you. Yeah. No, it's it's definitely on my list of things to I do. I mean, you've got a great art collection, and I know that you've got a great eye, and to lend that and also like different business ideas – of how yeah. to, uh, yeah, I think it'd be great. I do a lot of informal advising of of those sorts of groups, um, you know, just that that will come to me and talk to me about things, and I always I always really enjoy it and get get in deep um, pretty quickly. Uh, and and then uh, the other thing that's really important to me is is um, this region. You know, I want to see this region be a top ten mm-hmm. region in the world, mm-hmm. and I think that's attainable. And so I, I try to be involved with um, groups that are trying to bring us up um, mm-hmm. several notches, and then women. I have uh, to say, I hope you're going to cover women in underserved populations. Yes, yes, I am. I am really. I I am a huge believer that, in particular, we need women and underrepresented minorities at the top of the business world, and yeah. that that is what's truly going to bring change. Change. Mm-hmm. So the one thing I tend to stay away from, notwithstanding what I just said about the arts, are nonprofits because I think women are overrepresented in nonprofit. And so I try to stay just as solidly on the business side of things as I can, not because I don't love nonprofits, but just mm-hmm. because I feel like if I can make an impact in the business world, I will have done a lot more good. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, um, I'm super happy that we made the time to have the conversation Yes, me today. too. I'm, and, um, I'm hugely flattered. Well, thank you. I'm flattered and honored, and I'm excited to continue some of these things off <laughs> off the podcast over a cocktail. But my final question that I ask everyone is, uh, what fuels you? Ooh, yeah. Uh, I always say that uh, I want to be um, interested and interesting. So from sort of a lifestyle standpoint, those are the two things that that drive me just kind of personally. If I can say that's true every day, then I'm then I'm very happy with how the day went. Uh, But I also take a lot of um, I take a lot of inspiration in building um, what I think is a better future for, for women in particular by by doing what I do. Uh, I think that, you know, if we have more women at the top of business, we will uh, be in a much better place all the way down. Uh, women who are, you know, just at home with their kids will be better off if we have women at the top of business. So I am um, working really hard on that and think of that as being a, a a societal good that I'm engaged in, and then um, and then seeing this region really live up to its full potential is the mm-hmm. other thing that I use as a motivator for me. You know, I feel like if I can build some companies here with the help of my partners and the entrepreneurs that we invest in, mm-hmm. that will be good for this region. And if I can convince people that I run into, you know, in other parts of the world that we are that we have something really special here, that will do good things for the region as well. Yeah. Well, as a Seattleite and as a woman and as a friend, <laughs> thank you, thank you. And, yes, and super likewise, fun. Yeah. thank you for everything you're yeah. doing. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. 
Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You. 